are entering the Freedom Hut. Yet another supposed bombshell from the New York Times that just hit over the weekend that has people asking an insane question. Is President Trump really a Manchurian candidate for Russia? I can't believe we're back here dealing with this delusion, but we are. What does it say about where the Mueller probe is going and what the crazy Democrats led by Pelosi and Schumer have up their sleeves next, as well as what's coming up on the shutdown? That and more on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. I never worked for Russia. And you know that answer better than anybody. I never worked for Russia. Not only did I never work for Russia... I think it's a disgrace that you even asked that question because it's a whole big fat hoax. It's just a hoax. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. This is a crazy time in this country. It's in a sense, it's it's not new, but here we are dealing with the fact that uh, we have libs who are so deluded and such a bunch of crybabies about what's going on in America, that they they really think that the president of the United States is working on behalf of Russia. I can't even conjure up how this how this makes any sense. I, I know that they always get this. Oh, Manafort, and why do people lie? And Papadopoulos, and it, it's it's like watching the guy from a beautiful mind write things on the wall, right? Remember that with Russell Crowe, he's just writing all these things on the wall, and he thinks he's some secret agent man, and he's got these crazy algorithms. Every time I ask a liberal, what exactly do you think happened here? What's what's really the situation that is at the heart of all of these allegations and, and just this, this frenzy that President Trump is somehow working for a foreign power, an agent of a foreign power? You know, what, what could have pushed people to think this? I get some jumbled, oh, you know, Papadopoulos and and Carter Page and and the Trump Tower, Moscow and and Stormy Daniels. I'm like, wait, how did Stormy Daniels? Uh, gibberish. It's just gibberish. It never adds up to anything. Let's let's just start for some, from some some very clear and and irrefutable positions on this. Right for one, the notion that Donald Trump would have in any way gone through an intermediary or asked anybody to help him win the election against Hillary Clinton to put himself at that degree of risk for such preposterously low gain does not make sense. No person would do this. Oh yeah, you're you're going to expose yourself to Russian uh, Russian blackmail, to uh, being found out by the liberal media that hates you, to possible prosecution, imprisonment, and definitely the destruction of your reputation and character so that some of Podesta's emails can get out, so that there can be a, a more effective Russian Facebook ad buying campaign spent, you know, a, a few hundred thousand dollars on, on this whole effort all in, all across the board, that just makes no sense. There's no reason. This would be like someone saying, I think that 
this guy walked into the bank and robbed it. And I say, well, why do you think that is? Well, he's got a dollar in his bank account. I think he got it from the bank. I said, well, I don't think that robbing a bank for a dollar makes sense for anybody. So let's just look at motive here. There's no reason for President Trump to have at any stage of this worked with, colluded with the Russians. It fundamentally makes no sense. It's a dumb idea. Now, okay, they can go beyond that and they can say, oh, but Buck, you don't understand. Trump is so reckless and and he will do anything and they didn't know any better and all this stuff. And I say, okay, fine. Now, Now let's assume just for the sake of discussion that that is true. And really we're getting back to first principles here in the Russia collusion delusion. Let's assume for a moment that that's true, that Trump would be willing to engage in this collusion scheme to win the election, which is insane, but let's just pretend. Then you have to convince me how it is possible that with the most intrusive and sophisticated surveillance apparatus on the planet, the United States intelligence community, and U.S. federal law enforcement with all of its capabilities, which are effectively just, it's an intelligence, it's an intelligence arm of the government that has to operate under laws. Although I'll note that once the FBI gets into the counterintelligence realm, it really does operate a lot like an MI5 or one of these domestic intelligence agencies that's legal, but kind of quasi-legal. It, it starts to operate in the gray areas a lot more, which clearly happened here. So that, then you'd have to convince me that, oh, with all of that surveillance, here we are going on two years into this thing, and the worst that they can come up with is that Manafort may have given some unspecified polling data to a Ukrainian, not a Russian, friend of his when he was running the campaign, and Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and Manafort met with a woman who said she had oppo research on Hillary Clinton that she wanted to share. Neither of which are even vaguely criminal acts, not even a little bit, nothing criminal about either one of those things at all, full stop, period. That's the most that they can offer up? And I would note neither one of which would even raise any eyebrows had we not been conditioned by a hysterical left-wing Democrat media apparatus to act like in all things Russia require some kind of nuclear-ready response. I think I saw on Twitter today, you know, the Democrats in the span of about six years went from, ha-ha, Mitt Romney, the Soviet Union's done, the Cold War's over to, oh my gosh, we need to invade Moscow tomorrow. These people are a joke, but it's unfortunately very unfunny because they're having really damage a really damaging impact and and long-term ramifications i think on this country they are tearing apart at some of these institutions that we're supposed to be able to believe in and you have people that are getting platforms to say crazy things carl bernstein of woodward and bernstein fame just goes on cnn to speculate wildly about how trump is essentially a putin puppet play clip four 
We don't know the answers. But what we do know is that Donald Trump has tried to convince us that unless there is some kind of smoking gun, a recording of him in the room with Putin saying, yes, Vladimir, I'll do you bidding, there's been, quote, no collusion. That's nonsense. What this counterintelligence investigation was about, unprecedented. The FBI, and this is not about the deep state, this is about the most serious counterintelligence people we have in the U.S. government saying, oh my God, the president's words and action lead us to conclude that somehow he has become a winning, unwitting, or half-winning pawn, certainly in some regards, uh, to Vladimir Putin. He has not acted with Russia from the United States having a strength mm. advantage with Russia. Rather, he has done what appears to be Putin's goals. He has helped everything Putin that this guy is saying is garbage. I just want to everything that he's saying is laughable garbage. It's just crap. Notice how he switches from there must be collusion to he's doing Putin's bidding. That is a leap. That is transforming the conversation from being about possible insidious dealings between President Trump and the Russians to he's doing stuff that either the Democrats don't like or just doing stuff that Russia agrees is a good idea. Guess what, you idiot Democrats? Sometimes Russia wants things to be done that are actually good. Does that and we agree with them. Does that mean we shouldn't do them for all the people who are saying we're doing Putin's bidding by leaving Syria? Guess what? We were doing Putin's bidding by bombing the you know what out of the Islamic State. Stop thinking in these stupid forced frameworks where everything that Trump does is Russia. Uh, these people have lost it. They have lost it. They are in the midst of a hysteria. New York Times report on Friday said that there was a an investigation of Trump opened right after he fired Comey because there were some people in the FBI who thought that he must be doing the work of the Russians. Who does that sound like to you, by the way? I'd be willing to bet that Andy McCabe, fired for lying, fired for being a little partisan hack at the top of the FBI, that he was pushing this. This is not unprecedented in history that we have had an FBI that went rogue and that was be that had become a major political player. In fact, if you look at most countries around the world, there's always a danger of the secret police, which is what our FBI really is, becoming too powerful and becoming in its own eyes a check on the regime and then eventually and as somebody who used to work at the CIA, I know quite a bit about this side of the coin. Eventually, those secret police organizations often become the government. They supplant the government. But before they do that, they usually think of themselves as a necessary check on the executive's prerogatives. They think of themselves as guardians of the revolution or guardians of the integrity of the state or the fill-in-the-blank peoples, right? The, the national identity of whatever the state may be. And then eventually they think, well, maybe we should just run this thing. We do have a cabal of deep state operatives in this country. Some of them have been rooted out, but I don't think all of them have. And what the New York Times broke on Friday, leaked to the Times, I would note, 
was really, for those of us who are looking at this with open eyes, mere confirmation of what we have known for a very long time, that there are people in the government who decided that Donald Trump's victory in the presidential contest of 2016 was unacceptable, untenable, and had to in some way, if not be entirely reversed, at least restrained. And they used the power of the federal bureaucracy and the Department of Justice and the leeway that they have to open investigations to do so. No sane person could think that the firing of sanctimonious grandstander James Comey was reason enough to start an FBI investigation of a sitting president of the United States. This is crazy. And then that brings me to just another point that I want to add into it. The collusion fairy tale makes no sense. That we have no smoking gun evidence of it to this day, given what they say about Trump and given all the resources against him, means that now this is like believing space aliens landed and took over the White House. I mean, this is just a fantasy. And then there's another level of this. How do the Democrats explain all of the lies and malfeasance from senior government officials around this issue? You know, I always hear, why do people lie about, about their contacts with Russia? Why did people lie about uh, what they said to the special counsel, you know, Papadopoulos and, and Manafort? And I always want to respond, okay, why did McCabe lie three times about what he was doing in this process? Why did Lisa Page have to be uh, exposed for being an anti-Trump partisan in this way? Why did Peter Strzok have to be fired? I mean, you had Woodward there, or Bernstein, sorry, the other guy, Bernstein saying the top counterintelligence people, yeah, they, the FBI's best counterintelligence men were on this, and Peter Strzok is one of them, and if you don't think that that guy has a problem, you're not paying attention. Drunk on their own power because they know the power to investigate is the power to destroy. Merely by leaking word of an investigation or just creating an investigation trail, they knew that they were taking a very powerful step against the administration. We are getting closer to the truth, but the left is getting even more desperate. We are now in a, a race against time whereby if they take the presidency in 2020, we will never find out what really happened here because they're going to delay now in the Congress. They're going to delay as much as they can, but we're getting close. We're getting closer. We've got much more team. Uh, stay with me. In the midst of all the whining coming from the left, I mean, it's just crazy these days, right? They're chasing people out of restaurants, yelling at you in the coffee shop, acting like a bunch of maniacs. You have to wonder, why in the world would anyone act this way? My guess is they're just not getting their daily dose of Black Rifle coffee. I drink Black Rifle every morning. In fact, it's such delicious coffee that I'm usually a guy that likes a little con leche in my coffee. But guess what? I drink it black because it's Black Rifle for one. And also, this is delicious small batch roast to order coffee. All right. I am a silence for smooth blend guy, but their entire catalog of different beans and blends is amazing. Black Rifle is roast to order and is guaranteed fresh right to your door. Nothing cures a bad attitude like starting your day with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck.
I didn't need this fight. This is a rough fight. We're dealing against people who think that if they can stop me from building the wall, again, we've already done a lot of work, but they think that's a good thing for 2020 because they're not going to win. This is the reason why they don't want the wall built, because they all know it works. They all approved it numerous times. I mean, Chuck Schumer had his hand up every time this would come up. The senators know this. They're only doing this because of the 2020 election. That's true of what's going on at the border. It's also true of the Russia hoax, let me just put out there, that this is politics. It is all politics. And people who pretend otherwise are being disingenuous. This is about Democrats refusing to accept that Hillary lost. This is about Democrats refusing to accept that Donald Trump is president of the United States. And everything else fits in then. Everything else that that we're talking about here is really just a question of how it plays into that overarching narrative. So you have to keep that in mind. You have to have that in in, in really the, the forefront of your mind as you hear these these allegations. I mean, you know, meanwhile, you've got ABC's Jonathan Carl saying the following on the George Stephanopoulos show on uh, on Sunday that the Mueller report is going to have, guess what, not a whole lot. It's essentially going to be, when it comes to collusion, a nothing burger. Play two. This is all building up to the Mueller report and raising expectations of a bombshell report. And there have been expectations that have been building, of course, for over a year on this. But people who are closest uh, to, to what Mueller has been doing, who have interacted with the special counsel, caution me that this report is almost certain to be anticlimactic. That if you look at what the FBI was investigating in that New York Times report, look at what they were investigating, Mueller did not go anywhere with that investigation. He has been writing his report in real time through these indictments. And we have seen nothing from Mueller on the central question of was there any coordination, collusion with the Russians in the effort to meddle in the elections? Or was there even any knowledge on the part of the president or anybody in his campaign with what the Russians were doing? You see, this is what John Carl at ABC is trying to tell all the, uh, the libs, not just in the media, but all the libs at home are watching this. Your fantasy is not going to this this Russia collusion fantasy is not going to play out the way you want it to, guys. This is not going to end up with uh, Donald Trump on tape talking to Putin about how it's so awesome that they hacked Podesta's emails. But you listen to a lot of people and they make it sound like they think that's actually going to be the way this thing plays out. They have completely and utterly lost all perspective here. And. We need to be prepared for them to just get even crazier and uglier as this drags on. You now or have you ever worked for Russia, Mr. President? I think it's the most insulting thing I've ever been asked. I think it's the most insulting article I've ever had written. Uh, and if you read the article, you'd see that they found absolutely nothing. But the, the headline of that article is called The Failing New York Times for a reason. They've gotten me wrong for three years. They've actually gotten me wrong for many years before that. But you look at what's going on. You know, I fired James Coney. I call him Lion James Comey Mm -hmm. uh, because he was a terrible liar. And he did a terrible job as the FBI director. (laughs) Look at what happened with Hillary Clinton and the emails and the Hillary Clinton investigation. One of the biggest uh, screw ups that anybody's ever seen as an investigation. And what happened after I fired him? Andrew McKay, Peter Strzok, his lover, Lisa Page, they did it. 
And, you know, they're all gone. Most of those people, many, many people from the time. Are you a Russian agent? President has to answer that question. This is this is silly town stuff. Um, I would note, though, that there are there are a lot of Democrats. You have to remember this. There are a lot of Democrats for whom, even though they know intellectually, I've spoken about this. You won't hear many of them say this, but even though they know that this is just this is just insane, they justify it to themselves because they think that the uh, birth certificate controversy with Barack Obama, right, the whole birther theory, uh, which I was never I was never a subscriber to, but the the birther theory and Trump's uh, role in that essentially justifies now any smear against this president, any smear. I would note, though, that even the birther controversy didn't suggest that Barack Obama was a traitor. I'm not saying it was OK or it was right, but I'm saying they really believe that the president of the United States, or they're at least saying that the president of the United States is guilty of treason. Meanwhile, we just had that guy from ABC say people he's talked to near the special counsel are saying that if you're hoping for there to be some big reveal at the end of this investigation, you're going to be disappointed. But you see, what what I know is that it doesn't matter what comes out of the Mueller probe. If the Mueller probe does not have the goods that Democrats want, then guess what? They will just say, oh, we have to uh, we have to continue Mueller's work. You see, he was stymied in some way. You know, there was some he wasn't given the, the full resources. It doesn't matter. There'll be an excuse. I can't even tell you what the excuse is because they'll just make it up. It doesn't matter what the excuse is. They'll have some explanation about this. I mean, this is how we keep we've had. I feel like every month for the last year, at least. We have to go through this cycle where it's, oh, is someone going to do something to end the Mueller probe? Is Trump going to fire Rosenstein? Is he, they get all upset about this. You got Dick Durbin here talking about the incoming likely attorney general, uh, Bill Barr, and, and Dick Durbin is expressing his concerns. Play eight. Well, I'm worried about it. I mean, it, 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 clearly he's a good lawyer, no question. But when it comes to this delicate political situation, the power of the presidency, whether this investigation is warranted, Bill Barr had better give us some rock, uh, ironclad, rock-bottom assurances in terms of his independence and his willingness to step back and let Mueller finish his job. Why? Bill Barr was already the attorney general, and no one seemed to have any problem with it. Does, does every person who works at the Department of Justice have to give a public oath of fealty to Robert Mueller now? Is that but by the way, with Democrats, the answer is yes. You have to swear allegiance to the almighty Emperor Mueller, the great lib hope for ending the Trump presidency. You must you must kneel before the greatness of Mueller. This is it's just these people are sick I mean, they really have a problem. I mean, there's something just fundamentally wrong with them on this. But I suppose they're so very uh, freaked out at the notion of Trump winning in 2020. I mean, they, 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 they just can't handle it. You know, Lindsey Graham has already come out and said that Bill Barr is going to be fine. He's not going to fire anybody. Play nine. I'm going to ask him, do you see any reason to fire Mr. Mueller based on what you know now for cause? Do you trust Mr. Mueller to be fair to the president and the country? Will you make sure he can finish his job? If you get the report, uh, will you be as transparent as possible? I've asked him those questions, and I'm very comfortable with his answers. 
I've asked those questions. I'm comfortable with the answers. Turns out Barr is actually friends with Mueller. So th- this whole idea, this whole theory that there should be all this concern and, oh, my gosh, and what are we going to do and Mueller and blah, blah, blah. This is just, it's just nonsense. It's, but we have to, every month, we have to go through this again. We all have to pray before the altar of the great Mueller or else we're undermining democracy, undermining this country. Meanwhile, Democrats won't spend $5 billion so that maybe we have some hope of having some decent security at our southern border. And they're now uh, so dug in on this shutdown that everyone thinks that if anyone's going to cave, it's going to be the Republicans. We'll, we'll see about, about that. Um, I am going to the uh, border, uh, as you know. I am going to the border to see what's happening and to talk to frontline Border Patrol agents. You know, I, I heard today, though, on Fox that a senior Border Patrol officer said that to say that it's not a southern crisis at our border is just disingenuous. And I think it's so interesting because this is where you really see the left wing propaganda in action. They'll they'll just repeat things that that anybody can can see or can tell for themselves are false without even the the slightest compunction they'll ju- they'll just say stuff that you go wait a second there's no way that's true it's not possible that that's the case but they'll just keep saying it walls don't work there's an example walls don't work pretty sure walls work pretty pre- pretty sure a little bit a little bit pretty sure the walls work but they would prefer to uh engage in this nonsense and to lie and lie and lie because it serves their political needs they don't care about their credibility whatever credibility they have they're they're happy to throw it on a bonfire as long as it gets them the power that they think they need but i i am very much uh, looking forward to getting some time not just obviously to see what's going on at the border with my own eyes but to talk to border patrol i'm hoping to get into a detention facility and see what the situation is there i'm uh going to cover as much ground as i can I'll be there uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So I'll be out on the border for three days. Uh, we've got all kinds of, of meetings and, and uh, field, field visits set up. So I'll come back to you on Friday, and I'll have a whole lot of information to, uh, to share with you. Well, I'll be back on air before then. I'll certainly be on the show on Wednesday, so don't think that I'll. And pr- I won't be on Thursday. I will be on Wednesday, and tomorrow we're trying to figure it out. Uh, and Friday, so Wednesday and Friday, I'm definitely gonna be on air. We'll probably have Raheem in on Thursday, and if I, I will have a think Harlan Hill filling in. So we've got if if I'm not on air, you're gonna have great people on air this week. That so so be sure that you you tune in because we have fantastic guest hosts, as you know. Uh, but I'm going because I want to get you ground truth. I don't just want to be some guy who sits in the belt in, inside the Beltway here. And talks to all my little sources, and that stuff is useful, and that's that's obviously good for the political discussions we have. But I like to go out and see some stuff. I'd like to get out there and and put eyes on on target, so to speak. So that will be very useful. Um, but the 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 border shutdown situation, exactly the kind of there's exactly the kind of demagoguery that I had expected all along here. Um, you have you have Van Jones, of course, blaming Trump and and everything about Trump for the shutdown over at CNN. Play clip three. President Trump started 2019 by promptly dividing the country with more fear mongering, more falsehoods, 
and now we are in the longest running government shutdown ever. And, you know, the politics are ugly, but the human impact is even worse. Uh, this tip sheet off their website, but they had something up there where they were recommending that unpaid service members do stuff like this, have garage sale, uh, babysit, walk dogs, house sit, or become mystery shoppers during the shutdown. I'm not making this stuff up. And as a result of this, everybody, all of us are in danger. Now, that's not true about us in danger because 85% of the federal government continues to work. I would just note that the 15% that's not currently doing things or not getting paid, I should say, um, do we really think that every every single government employee right now that we have on the payroll is entirely necessary for our safety and our existence? I also think it's, it is exposing a mentality here that people who work for the federal government have it. Look, nobody should be forced to work without pay. That's a specific thing to the federal government. But on the other side of it is that financial hardship for people who have jobs is nothing new in the private sector. I know plenty of people. I know people in media who have driven a cab, driven an Uber, uh, done whatever they can do when things have gotten rough. You know, book advances are paltry. Websites pay crap money for the most part. It's really hard to scratch out a living in, in, in my business. I know plenty of people that have to do side gigs. I knew somebody who was was tutoring and didn't want to go to his real job because he was making more money tutoring for grad school students than he was actually at his at his gig in media. You know, so, the, you know, I understand that Van Jones wants to sneer at Trump and, oh, these are the suggestions they're putting up on the website. Yeah, sure, some of them maybe aren't going to help all that much, but there's a, a critical problem here that's killing tens of thousands of people, the opioid epidemic, that is fueled by our lack of security at our southern border, Lives are at stake. If that means that people have to adapt for a few weeks financially, I'm not saying it's fair or it's nice, but at some point we have no choice. You know, are, are we going to have a country or not? Are we going to have sovereignty and borders or not? This is the question that is posed right now, and we are going to find an answer one way or the other. I think we know where Democrats stand on this. I'm just here to say that we don't have to accept their nonsense. We don't have to accept their version of events here. We can stand and fight and make the case, and Trump is doing that, and I think doing it effectively. Can you promise that the president will tell the truth tonight? Will he tell the truth? Yes, Jim, and can you promise that you will? I'm not the Am I allowed to mention God to you? Jim, I know that's a cheat. Make sure that goes viral. Okay. This is why, by, by the way, this is why I'm one of the only people around here who even gives you the time of day. Can you, can you guarantee And let me, let me just, let me get back in your face, because you're such a smart ass most of the time, and I know you want this to go viral. I like Kellyanne Conway throwing down with Jim Acosta at CNN. I think it's great. Uh, good for her. I had a chance to go on, on Fox uh, to discuss this a little bit with uh, with Howie Kurtz. Very nice of him to have me on. And I just want to share that this, this is what I got to say on Media Buzz about that exchange. With I, I think everyone needs to understand what's really going on at CNN. Play six. Jim Acosta plays a very important role right now in our media discourse, and that is he makes it effectively impossible to continue the charade that you have certain networks, certainly uh, certain newspapers, as objective, nonpartisan news sources. This is a joke. I mean, CNN, from an editorial perspective, not everybody there, there are good journalists there, just like everywhere else, but from a broad editorial perspective, CNN exists 
to launder liberalism for its audience. Essentially, the audience thinks that they're getting objective news. They want to believe that. They think they're just getting the facts. But when you see Acosta do something like this, not only is he not disciplined, he's effectively celebrated by the institution. That was just a cheap shot. It was an attack. It was meant to undermine a senior administration official. Well, and a dirty pool. Dirty pool, indeed. But that is, I, I think, the one, the one good thing, you know, the one takeaway from Acosta's shenanigans that I have to say I'm, uh, I'm pleased about is that people now have a better understanding of what's really going on in the media and what the real, the real game is here. They are not. They are just fundamentally not concerned with objective truth-telling. They are activists. They are partisans. And I think the more the American people know that, the better. It's also important that we remember that as we enter this phase of just all-out political trench warfare. I mean, there's there's reporting today that Adam Schiff over the Intelligence Committee wants to get the translator for Trump and Putin's private meeting to testify in front of Congress. I'm sorry, but if there is such a thing as executive privilege and executive privacy, you would think the president should be able to have a discussion with a world leader that is not a matter of public record. Does does everything that gets said to Trump through a translator at any meeting does that does that get to be blasted out to the press? Is every is the president not allowed? You know, we, we we've accepted the media accepted that diplomacy requires some secrecy. You'll remember this from back when they used to like WikiLeaks in the press, right? But we would say, hold on a second, diplomacy requires some degree of, if not secrecy, at least, you know, source protection and confidentiality. Right? You have to have some ability to speak in confidence. The president can't speak to world leaders in confidence now because Adam Schiff is a punk and wants to try to embarrass him or whatever. People keep saying, why would Trump not want the conversation with Russia to be out there? Because he knows that whatever he says to Putin, whatever he says to this world leader that he has to talk to, he has no no choice, really. They're going to find something wrong with it. and They're going to blast him. Also, should you should be you should remind yourself. I should remind all of us. I guess that's what I'm doing now. That that was an inartful way of saying this. Uh, the media is going to be a mouthpiece for this leftist deep state soft coup going forward. You know, there's this leak of transcripts that CNN was reporting on about the discussion within the FBI to start this investigation right after the Comey firing. Play that clip, John. Transcripts obtained by CNN. Shimon. Yeah, that's right, John. So these transcripts really give us a window, a look inside the process by which the FBI underwent, the thinking that they certainly had into how to go about whether or not they were going to bring this investigation, open this investigation into Donald Trump. Now, this new information obtained by CNN from transcripts of two FBI officials who testified, two members of Congress, which was closed door uh, interviews. And what it reveals that on one end, there was the idea that Trump fired the former FBI director, James Comey, at the behest of Russia. And then on the other was the possibility that Trump was completely innocent and was acting within the bounds of his executive authority. Now, so why is it that every time, first of all, the fact that this is leaked just goes to show you that, you know, Schiff and these other Democrats are going to be leaking like mad going forward. But also... Why is it that we we always hear about the investigation got started? We don't hear that there are other people in the FBI who are like, this is crazy. He's totally innocent. 
Why are we going to do this? That's right, because the deep state partisan hacks got their way because they were running things. Comey and McCabe and Strzok, and I'm sure they have some Confederates in there as well, some fellow plotters against this president. We are going into political warfare. We might as well know who the enemy is. By now, team, you've probably heard me talk about Snippy.com, which is a new social media site. If you've looked at Snippy.com and left, you need to look again. Thousands of my listeners have joined Snippy.com, and they're expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform that's all about conversation and community. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. Check into Snippy.com for a quick update on politics, sports, current events, food, fashion, you name it. It is a place where everyone can share their thoughts without worrying about left-wing bias and progressive moderators, okay? It's totally free to join, totally free to post. There's nothing here other than just signing up and get involved in the conversation. No shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and cool new features, available in the Apple App Store and for Android, snippy.com. Set up your profile today and start posting snippy.com. The left absolutely loves identity politics. You know this. They have this whole hierarchy of oppression in society. They call it intersectionality. Who oppresses whom? Who is the most oppressed? What can we do to deal with the oppression between all these different groups? And this, in no small measure, contributes to a sense of grievance mongering that exists on the left. Now, Representative Steve King of Iowa has gotten himself into a whole lot of trouble once again for saying things that he or tweeting things, writing things, saying things, all of the above that he should not have. I think it's interesting, though, that when there is an opportunity for the left to really condemn incredibly repeated and vicious anti-Semitic bigotry when it comes to Louis Farrakhan, they all of a sudden get a little bit uh, mealy-mouthed. It's a little well on the one hand, on the other hand. The Women's March is a thing. You've probably seen them. They're the ones that used to march around with the pink, anatomically correct hats on. They claim to represent all women. Meanwhile, if you're part of the 50% of women or so who are pro-life, you are not only unrepresented by the Women's March, you are not welcome at the Women's March. That's right. The choice not to destroy your own offspring in the womb somehow, according to the progressive left and their intersectional identity politics belief, uh, means you're not really a woman or in some way your womanhood is subject to uh, additional scrutiny, if not some degree of skepticism. Well, the Women's March is a thing that we should all take a longer look at because there are some people who are associated with it who really enjoy taking photographs with, appearing at public events with, and speaking on the same stage as Louis Farrakhan, who is as clear and obvious and in many ways uh, proud of his anti-Semitism as anyone could possibly be. I mean, this guy says things like he's not anti-Semite, he's anti-termite. He just, the, when, when you were coming up with textbook anti-Semitism and bigotry, the stuff that Farrakhan says could go right in there, all right? And I don't think that's something that any 
serious person would would contest. Okay, Louis Farrakhan is an anti-Semite, if there is such a thing as an anti-Semite. And Tamika Mallory and Bob Bland, who are two of the uh, women who are the heads of the so-called Women's March, they went on The View today, where my uh, friend and the former uh, former host of the show, Megan McCain, uh, decided to push her a bit because there is, in the Women's March, at least some real anti-Semitism. And, and it's worth asking the question, why hasn't this been fully repudiated? Meaning that if the association that a conservative could have with any other individual who is a white nationalist or a racist or a bad person is enough that that person should be asked to condemn the association. Isn't that true of libs as well? Shouldn't libs have to live by their own standards? We know the answer is no, because they don't want standards. But you understand what I'm saying. And to uh, to Megan's great credit and to, to uh, Tamika Mallory's, well, you can hear it for yourself. Here's how the exchange went. Let me just interject really quickly. I would never be comfortable supporting someone who called, I'm not anti-Semite and I'm anti-termite. It's the wicked Jews, the false Jews that are promoting lesbianism, homosexuality. I actually spoke with the journalist from Tablet Magazine who released an investigation report on your organization. And in part, they allege that there is a lot of anti-Semitism surrounding this march. Specifically, the report alleged that you, Tamika, and co-founder Carmen Perez asserted that, quote, Jewish people had a history of exploiting black people and were proven to be leaders of the American slave trade. Now, a lot of people, by a lot of people, I include me in this, think that you're using your organization as anti-Semitism masked in activism and that you're using identity politics to shield yourself from critiques. You're talking about all women being invited to that march. I'm pro-life. We were not invited. We were, we were not allowed at that march right there. I'm a conservative woman. I also represent, if you're talking about women, you should be talking about all women, including Jewish women as well, and conservative women. Now, Bob Bland went on to say, Bob Bland is a woman uh, who is one of the heads of the Women's March. That that's not true and that pro-life women are are welcome in the Women's March. And, and I I'm sorry, but that's not true. Um, but she said it. Nonetheless, I had the uh, what would we call it, um, the professional duty to interview Ms. Bland during the Kavanaugh hearing. And she came across as somebody who and I, I'm not trying to be glib or funny. She came across as somewhat disturbed. I mean, so as though she had problems coping with, with reality. She claimed that Kavanaugh's confirmation would result in millions of women dying. That was a quote, and I had to sit there and listen to it. She also uh, lied very brazenly about a position that Kavanaugh, she claimed that Kavanaugh held when it was not in fact his position. It was the position of somebody who was petitioning before the court, and he happened to be a judge when that was happening. Nonetheless, not an impressive intellectual, to say the least, but back to Tamika Mallory here, African-American female. She's having this exchange with Meghan McCain about Minister Farrakhan and about race and anti-Semitism. And Meghan essentially is saying, look, you're using the fact that you are a protected class, being a female and being a minority, it seems, to escape accountability for spending time with a guy who is clearly a dirtbag. And once again, Megan, I, I give her a, a high five from afar. I'll send her a, a, a text later and tell her thank you as well. She just hones in. She says, you know, let's just make this really easy. You, Bob Bland and Tamika Mallory, you two women of the Women's March representing progressive activism at its height, at its pinnacle. You know, that's 
what their brand really is. This is all about being a leftist who wants to make the country uh, more accepting of one another, they say. But really, it's just about pushing progressive left-wing causes, anti-life causes, um, jamming transgender ideology and all the rest of it down everyone's throats. But with that, Megan says, okay, let's make this really simple. Just condemn Louis Farrakhan's words. Here is how that went when Megan said to Tamika Mallory on The View, just, okay, we know what Louis Farrakhan has said. We know what he stands for. Will you condemn him now? Play it. I don't speak for Jewish people, but I think I'm just confused. Mm-hmm. These remarks are, yeah. I mean, it goes on death to Israel over yeah, and over so again. We did not make those remarks. We did not make you can't but put you're associating with a man and who so does I, what publicly. I will, what I will say to you is that I don't agree with many of Minister Farrakhan's statements. That's Specifically a, that's, about Jewish people. As I said, I don't agree with many of Minister Farrakhan's statements. Do you uh, condemn them? I don't agree with these statements. At the end of the day... You won't condemn it. No, no, no. To be very clear, it's not my language. It's not the way that I speak. It is not how I organize. And I think it is very clear over the 20 years of my own... Well, I would like to tell Ms. Mallory what what is very clear is that she won't condemn the remarks. She can try to come up with as many uh, different constructions of this as she wants, but the fact of the matter is she's asked a straightforward question... Will you condemn these remarks? And her response is, I would not use those words. That's not a condemnation of somebody who's calling Jewish people termites. That's, that's not a condemnation at all. Uh, that's essentially a, a, a dodge. That is trying to avoid the question. And I think that what you see here is that, once again, intersectionality inherently means that these different grievance groups, whether they're uh, gender, racial, sexual orientation, uh, nationality, or whatever based, but these different grievance groups will inherently come to blows and consume one another because there is no real standard for who is in a position to adjudicate who is the most aggrieved. So who gets away with certain kinds of comments and who doesn't you know, the only thing they can all agree on is that white males are bad and need to be put in their place and white male patriarchies destroying, destroying the world, destroying America, all of this. But beyond that, they can't figure out what the unifying principle is of what they all stand for, because what they stand for is being angry at people based upon their perceived treatment as a result of gender, sexual orientation, skin color and all the rest of it. This is where you see that this politics of intersectionality of I am first and foremost in society to be judged and and will judge others based upon my identity group. That is toxic. It is toxic and it leads to this kind of incoherence where you have people who are claiming, as they did during this interview, to be all about healing and coming together and combating bigotry and they can't even combat the bigotry in their own ranks because there are special and privileged positions within this hierarchy of identities that allow for greater latitude and leeway than any other person would have in saying things that are racist, defamatory, ugly, anti-Semitic, whatever the case may be. There is no one single standard because all these standards based on intersectional belief, have to be adjusted and readjusted in the, in the moment, really, based on the, the petty 
short-term needs of the movement. So you saw it all break down there, and the women's march is obviously full of people who are really delusional. But that's perhaps a conversation for another time. We'll hit a break here, team. We'll be right back. You know what's smart? Figuring out who to hire to take your business to the next level in 2019. You know what else is smart? Starting the new year off strong by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck to hire the right people. I know I did. I've got some great colleagues because of ZipRecruiter at Hill TV. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience and actively invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And this rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over a thousand reviews. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter totally free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. If you love this show and you love hiring great people, show your support for ZipRecruiter. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Again, one more time, everybody, totally free, ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Room, there are only three African-Americans in the whole of Senate. You're one of them. Two are Democrats. So as we go forth, uh, it, it's interesting to note your prominence there as a person of color. And then I want to get from you what you want the country to hear about what Stephen King said. Well, first, let me just congratulate and thank my Republican leaders, folks like Kevin McCarthy, Joni Ernst, Ted Cruz, uh, Jeb Bush, Jason Chaffetz, who've all spoken out loud and clear and rebuked the comments of Steve King. I think the House will handle its business. I have confidence that Kevin McCarthy will do the right thing and will do it very quickly. So I look forward to that outcome. But for me, it's not about the Republican Party. Steve King's comments are uh, antithetical to what is, in fact, the American dream. And the durability of the American dream is the strength of the American spirit. And what he did was he struck against the American spirit. Mm. So he weakened the spirit. And when that happens, our nation is less competitive globally. I wanted you to hear from Senator Scott there about Steve King's remarks. I, I didn't want to just talk to you about what happened on The View and Tamika Mallory, and which is obviously heightened right now because of Steve King and, and that whole controversy without airing out what Steve King said, which was essentially, when did white supremacy and white nationalism become a bad thing? I, I forget the exact quote. But it was something along those lines. At Actually, here, of course, this is the Buck Sexton Show. We are precise. Thank you, Producer Mike. The New York Times uh, quoted Steve King asking, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? When someone does something like this, it 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 ticks me off on multiple levels when someone says something like this who claims to be a Republican or a conservative because it makes the cause and the job of conservatism harder. He makes it harder for all of us uh, now, which means that I'm obviously going to very vehemently oppose people who say things like this because conservatism is all about an ideology of individual responsibility, intrinsic human worth and human dignity and the respect that we all owe to each other as God's creatures and as human beings, we are all equal in the eyes of God. Without that, you don't have conservatism. Without that, you got, you got something else. I, I don't know what it is. And perhaps Steve King just 
incredibly poorly worded uh, worded something incredibly poorly. I can't apparently word things well right now either. He he essentially might have just said something that sounded terrible that he didn't intend to, but it sounded terrible. And so you got to call somebody out for that. And I don't think he's walked it back at all. But I wanted to note there you had a GOP senator and he's an African-American, of course, Senator Scott. And he's saying that this has no place. And he pointed out that a lot of the most prominent GOP folks out there in Congress say this has no place. So don't let the media go to saying, oh, Republicans never condemn this stuff. Oh, no, we condemn it all the time. We condemn it. We don't like it. And we don't like the lies around situations like this either, where we are told, oh, conservatives have no problem with this. Bull crap. Now, with that said, I would like to move on for just a couple of moments here to the teacher strike out in L.A. As you know, I'm, I'm heading out to San Diego tonight. I will be there and uh, coming to you, assuming I can figure out the the scheduling of things, I should be coming to you uh, from the near the border tomorrow on radio at the normal time, so don't worry about that, although I may have to have a pinch hitter if the logistics get too complicated because I'm going to be going all over the place at the border, and I'm looking forward to getting a lot of ground truth Uh, as well as spending some time in 65-degree weather instead of 25-degree weather. That sounds particularly nice. But there's a teacher strike that will be happening in Los Angeles. And I I think that this is a good opportunity to point out that, you know, the teachers— see, I'm not just knee-jerk, oh, you know, the teachers, they want more money, this is about— No, no, the teachers have a pretty good case— for getting a pay raise. Not not an ironclad case, but when you look at where they are uh, vis-a-vis where they were 15 or 20 years ago and, and the pay increases over time, um, teachers, I think, are on some reasonable ground, especially in places like West Virginia, where they were the 49th out of 50 in terms of overall pay. You know, teachers should be you know, well compensated as teachers, right? They should be well compensated in the grand scheme of things. We can't pay them like investment bankers, although investment bankers would tell you they can't get paid like Silicon Valley barons. Um, but teachers overall have have a decent point. The problem, though, in Los Angeles is where's all the money going? Because there's a lot of money. And they have, in fact, $2 billion of funds that have been set aside that the city of Los Angeles, of course, entirely run by Democrats. This is an entirely uh, the school district in Los Angeles. It's it's a Democrat owned and operated and run situation, right? The Democrats are completely in charge. I don't think anybody would deny that. That's just the truth. Uh, the problem, though, is that the money that they want to use for a teacher raise is allocated to retirees from the school system and their benefits. You see, one part of the conversation whenever you're talking about public sector unions that does not get accounted for is what are we paying for the previous workforce that we had? That's usually where unions get the sweetest deals because it's a lot easier to say we're going to give people great benefits in 30 years or 20 years when they retire instead of we're going to give them a big pay raise today. So they tend to have a lot of major back-end public sector expenses Uh, And the other place where there's a big problem is you could give all teachers, this is courtesy of my friend Inez uh, Felcher-Stepman over at the uh, Federalist, you could give all teachers an 11% raise if you had just indexed the increase in administrative hiring, meaning admin staff, to the rest of the school's growth. So if there's 10% more students, you have 10% more admin staff. 
The truth is that the money in the teachers, uh, in, in the teaching systems of these major school districts like Los Angeles has gone to support personnel, admin staff, a lot of whom are unnecessary and are just part of a giant Democrat jobs program. So, you know, it's more complicated than just teachers should get a raise. Should teachers get a raise? Maybe they should get something of a raise. But they've also got to look at how they're going to fund their pension, how they're going to fund their health care benefits. And what about all this admin staff they have around? That's the part of this the public won't find out about. And that's why this will all just eventually be handled with, you guessed it, more raising of taxes, which will cause more middle class flight from California about some municipalities like San Francisco who have decided that it's okay for some non-citizens to vote in local elections? I, I think there's a difference between municipal and state and federal. Uh, part of municipality, I, I'm not arguing for it or against it, but I will say having been deputy city attorney, uh, there's a very, the, the granularity of what cities decide is so specific as to I think, allow for people to be participants in the process without it somehow undermining our larger democratic ethic that says that you should be a citizen to be a part of the conversation. So not in some cases, you would be supportive of non-citizens voting? I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't oppose it. That's right. There you had gubernatorial hopeful for the state of Georgia, Stacey Abrams, Democrat who had Oprah stumping for her, had Will Ferrell, I think, going door to door, knocking knocking on folks' doors to get them to come out and vote for Stacey Abrams. There you have her speaking to uh, Margaret Hoover, I guess on, is that on uh, PBS? And Margaret asks her about whether Stacey Abrams thinks that illegals should be able to vote in local elections. Essentially, if you live in the city of Atlanta or New York or Los Angeles or you name it, and you are an illegal, should you have a say, as in an official legal say, as in being able to cast a ballot for whomever's going to run that city and whoever the police commissioner is going to be and et cetera, et cetera, you know, who the uh, the district attorney is going to be. You, you look at this and you say to yourself, this should be a really easy question, right? Should somebody who is not even legally allowed to be in the United States should that person be given the right to have an official legal vote that they can cast in an election on U.S. soil? I would think the answer to anybody who is a believer in the rule of law and who wants to take our law seriously would say, no, of course not. But you notice Stacey Abrams here lets you in on what the Democrats really think. Stacey Abrams is saying, oh, well, I think it's really complicated and I wouldn't necessarily oppose it. That's Democrats speak for, I know that I'll get a lot of heat if I tell you what I'm really thinking on this one, so I would rather take this non-committal position of, well, I'm just not sure right now, but I can kind of see how some people would want illegal aliens to be able to vote in elections for their local you know, local, whatever, governor, or not, not governor, mayor, uh, city council, all that kind of stuff. This is the future, my friends. This is where it's all heading. And, and I'll, I'll just say this. Does anyone really believe that if Democrats start city by city, they already have sanctuary city policies, so 
So we know that, and there are whole states now, like California, that are effectively sanctuary states. We know that they don't really care what the federal law is with regard to immigration. They are not on board for helping the federal government in any way enforce those laws. Other federal laws, local governments, all about helping, right? But immigration, no, they do not. They do not want to have any part in that. How long before we hear a similar case to be made? I mean, if, if you can make the case that somebody living in a city should have a say in how that city is run and governed, even if they are not legally under the law of the land allowed to be in that city, why couldn't you say that about Congress and uh, elected representatives on Capitol Hill? Why can you say it about Senate? Why can't you say it about the president? I know that people would say, oh, Buck, but it's local law versus federal law. And to that, I would say, yeah, but they don't like the federal law either. And they don't obviously buy into the principle that there's anything inherently wrong with being in this country illegally. I and mean, th- this is a really important philosophical difference that, that we need to understand in this immigration debate. You see, the way that we are, we've been told to approach this because of Democrat and media propaganda for a long time is we all want to fix illegal immigration. We all want the laws to be enforced. We don't want open borders. It's just a question of how we get to better, uh, better enforcement of our immigration laws and, and better processes in, in place for legal immigrants. That's what we've been told. But what's really happened because of all the media stories about the dreamer valedictorians and all this stuff that they all the the essentially pro illegal propaganda that's out there. What's happened is that the Democrats have over time and their base and the 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 ideological left has been conditioned to think that there's really nothing at all that is wrong with illegal immigration, that essentially the only problem that anybody could ever have with legal immigration is rooted in some kind of racism or nativism, and it's it's not a bad thing. It just is a thing that has to be managed properly. That now management of a problem is different from enforcement to stop a problem. Right? The Democrats have essentially decided as a party, and again they won't say this, but when you hear people like Stacey Abrams talking about it, it's really very clear. I think how they feel about this issue. The Democrats have made a decision that there is no longer anything wrong with illegal aliens in the country, that there's no problem with it. It's just how do we how do we best uh, manage integrating them into society, registering them for votes, making them citizens, you know, and, and they haven't consulted most of the American people on this one. They've just decided that this is the right thing for them to do. And you'll see it first at the local level, and then it will expand, and eventually they will be pushing for uh, congressional legislation. And think about how much more powerful at that point the political constituency for this will be when you have millions and millions of about-to-be-legalized, mostly Latino illegal aliens in the country. Do you think that a lot of politicians, if they think they're going to be on the wrong side of this, will, will stand against it? I think the answer is most certainly no, I think then the, the, the momentum for this will be stronger than it's ever been. So this is just, Stacey Abrams is giving you a glimpse into the future in this country when eventually they'll be openly advocating for illegal aliens to vote, not just in local elections, but they will eventually advocate for them to have the full rights of citizenship, 
once they are amnestied. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. That's why this promise, oh, it's just amnesty. It won't lead to votes. This is a lie. This is a lie. Just like so many of the lies they've told us in immigration for the last 20 or so years, 30 or so years. And it's just going to get worse. That's why Trump has to stand firm now. Bullying. The Me Too movement against sexual harassment. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Who's the daddy? What I actually think she's trying to say. Making the same old excuses. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. But something finally changed. Allegations regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment. But she says And there will be no going back. Because we, we believe in the best in men. So you might be thinking, what is this weird commercial that is running on Buck's show? That's actually a public service announcement. A public service announcement from Gillette, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It is a subsidiary of Procter & Gamble. They make the razors and the shaving cream and all that stuff. And this is a, a very clearly uh, political stance or a cultural commentary PSA on toxic masculinity, which is now a subject that we're all supposed to talk about. I, I have many, many feelings about this, um, and, and it comes in the aftermath of the American Psych, uh, Psychological Association, or whatever it's called, putting out these guidelines for dealing with toxic masculinity. Most of what people talk about as toxic masculinity is really just covered by the very sage advice, don't be a huge jerk. Don't be a bad person. Don't abuse people. Don't uh, be predatory in your interactions with people. Don't use your power to leverage yourself onto people physically or otherwise in a way that makes them uncomfortable. This is all just stuff that anybody with a pretty good sense of, of ethics and decency doesn't have to be told. But you see, just as it was only a matter of time before the Me Too movement, which is mentioned in this, in this ad, uh, before the Me Too movement was weaponized for explicitly partisan political purposes, which is what we saw in the Kavanaugh hearing. I mean, the Kavanaugh hearing was the culmination of a lot of Me Too momentum that came from very legitimate cases, very very high-profile, true abusers being exposed. So there were good things there. I mean, that's that's to be sure, right? I mean, you know, and any movement can be capable of some positive things along the way, but that doesn't mean that all things along the way should be excused, should be considered inherently positive because other things have been positive, right? We can look at, at a whole bunch of different events and, and political movements throughout history and understand this. And with this assault on what they call toxic masculinity, what you will see is, okay, sure, I don't want to be a bully, a jerk, a sexual harasser, a a uh, sexual assaulter, you know, you go through all this stuff, somebody who makes 
comments, you know, hey, toots to uh, somebody in the office and says, you know, make me a sandwich and, you know, stuff like that, right? Nobody, nobody wants to be those things. And there's very good reasons why we shouldn't treat each other that way. But toxic masculinity is then a concept that's used for a whole lot more things than just bad behavior. Toxic masculinity starts to now become a way to describe uh, aggressive male behavior that can be very useful, right? Uh, that, you know, you want. I mean, I would argue to you that, you know, it, it is masculinity that inspires a guy who is at a bar or at a party to intervene when somebody who is weaker than somebody else is being picked on or to intervene when a guy is harassing a woman, maybe grabbing at or groping a woman that, you know, that the guy who's the bystander doesn't even know, he intervenes because he has a masculine impulse to do so. I mean, I, I think it is masculinity that makes a, a guy who is out with a lady feel the need to uh, protect her physically and protect her honor and protect her, her dignity along with his own. Uh, we used to call this chivalry, but now that that's a that's a term that feels so outdated. We can't use it anymore. Uh, but also, I would say you know, toxic masculinity is now used as a term, a very broad term to, uh, and, and and they use it intentionally in this way to conflate what are very political stances with the criticism of toxic masculinity. What I mean is, you can look at say gender norms. And now, if you're if you want your child to dress as a boy at a young age, if it's a boy, instead of saying we're going to have you in gender gender neutral clothing, maybe that is if you're a father, your own impulse of toxic masculinity. The left would say coming out, right? Maybe that desire to institute what you would see as traditional gender roles and gender feelings is somehow connected to your own toxic masculinity. This is how this concept is being uh, bandied about these days. And, you know, it reminds me also of this piece I, I read in the Washington Post over the weekend uh, that, that goes through and talks about the uh, new guidelines from the APA when it comes to dealing with men and boys. And it goes through all of these different, these different statistics about, about homicide and about suicide and you know, the truth is that a lot of this is biologically driven. And they also, for people that are so interested in science, they don't seem to have much care for looking at what does testosterone do versus what does estrogen do in the body? What psychological impact does testosterone have? And I'm not saying that this is determinative, meaning that that because you have more or less testosterone, you're going to act in a certain way and therefore it will either excuse or entirely explain it. But the left is, is fascinated with gender differences until they're not, right? They're fascinated with the gender spectrum and gender identity, but they have very little interest, it seems, in understanding the role that biochemistry plays in the way that we approach gender. And the fact of the matter is that testosterone manifests itself in differences that are not only physical. They manifest themselves in differences in the psychology of individuals. And men are, because of our biology, more prone to be aggressive, more prone to approach situations in a certain way. This is just a, a reality that we're all aware of, but 
You know, the left likes to try and force us to unlearn common sense and replace it with what is politically fashionable at any point in time. And this idea of toxic masculinity as a problem that we have to tackle, I have to say, I, I, I don't, I think the problem we have in this country is that we are not rewarding and speaking up enough about men who are masculine in all the right ways and that their sense of purpose and achievement and strength and, uh, you know, dignity against all the odds and their willingness to go and fight for what is good and what is right. We want to foster that in society. We, we do not want to create a culture of passive men. We do not want to create a culture where men think that they have to approach their day-to-day lives the way that traditionally or historically women have thought they should approach the day-to-day lives because men and women are different. And that now is increasingly a revolutionary thing to say, that there's a separation between men and women, that our biology manifests itself in differences that are real and observable. And yet the science right now, at least from the shrink community, is increasingly pointed toward be less masculine because too much masculinity is inherently a bad thing. That's not true. Destructive masculinity, which is separate and apart from anything that is necessarily masculine, just acting poorly, unethically, badly, that's a bad thing. But we don't need psychologists to tell us that, do we? And we've known what is moral and what is right in our interactions with each other, with women, with everybody for a very long time. It's not all about this toxic masculinity concept. And be on guard for how this is deployed in conversation by the left. Man, the left can always find something to whine about. Right now it's walls don't work and Trump is a Russian agent. But we know that's not true, right? And we also know that maybe if the left just drank some delicious Black Rifle coffee, they would learn to chill just a bit and enjoy life and stop complaining. You see, I start every day with a delicious cup of Black Rifle coffee. It is roast to order and can be delivered to your door, which guarantees you delicious, fresh coffee with every order. Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes it easy. Just pick your blend, the amount you want, and Black Rifle will ship it right to your door every month totally hassle-free, all right? Nothing cures a bad attitude quite like starting your day with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Again, one more time, everybody, check it out. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. There's a really stunning piece in the Wall Street Journal that I would recommend to all of you when you get a moment. It's a Parkland father's quest for accountability. And it tells the story of of Andrew Pollock, whose daughter Meadow was among those who were uh, viciously murdered. Uh, 17 people killed 14 students and three adults during the 11 minutes of the park Uh, Parkland school shooting at Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, Mr. Pollock lost his daughter, and he has been waging something of a one-man crusade for accountability in this whole process. You see, he, unlike the uh, lionized uh, Parkland students 
which by that I mean just a handful, really three of them, who are very progressive and who have been turned into celebrities by the media because they're willing to say things like the NRA is a terrorist organization, this David Hogg kid and a couple of his confederates, they say really inappropriate and indefensibly uh, stupid and unfair things, but the NRA is the enemy, gun owners are the bad guys, and the liberal left media loves that, can't get enough of it. Uh, As I have said to you, and it's an important point, so I repeat it, much of what is really opposition to uh, guns in this country has turned into the left's hatred for gun owners. It really is about despising the people who own the guns, and it's, it's a cultural marker. If you own guns, you're the wrong kind of person. If you support the Second Amendment, you're the wrong kind of person, and there is a contempt that the left has for people who own guns. Now, you know David Hogg's name and some of the other names probably as well because they were held up as exactly what should be done after a school shooting, which is demonize the NRA and gun owners and tell people who disagree on policy matters that they don't care about dead children. And the victim status of those kids, meaning the kids that are speaking out publicly about this, is used not just as a shield against criticism, but it it then becomes weaponized. If you were to say that David Hogg is a smug punk, which he is, uh, then people say, oh my gosh, he survived a tragedy, you're terrible, you're a horrible person. Meanwhile, he's calling for boycotts against people and trying to ruin people's careers. Mr. Pollock, however, takes a different approach to all of this. He really looks at who is responsible here, meaning who could have done something differently so that all these lives would not have been lost? Who put in, uh, put in place policies that were so idiotic and so reckless that the people implementing those policies bear some degree of the responsibility for the tragedy that happened? He's a father who lost his daughter to a murder, a mass murder in her high school, and he wants answers, and he gets far less attention in the media because The answers he's looking for really matter. He's not saying that people who own guns, the 60 million gun owners in this country are the bad guys. He's not saying the Second Amendment is terrible and flawed. He's saying, hold on a second, what what could have been done differently so that lives here would have been saved or perhaps no lives would have been lost? And he points his finger, of course, at the murderer. He says the murderer... I blame the murderer for 50% of what happened, Mr. Pollack says in this piece. But then he goes on to make a very compelling case that it's much more than just the murderer that should be held accountable here. Not accountable for murder, but held to account for their mistakes. Quote, Mr. Pollack believes that political correctness killed Meadow. A prominent villain in his narrative is Robert Runcie who came to Broward from Chicago in 2011 as a superintendent of the county's public schools. Mr. Runcie introduced a program called PROMISE, a feel-good acronym for Preventing Recidivism Through Opportunities, Mentoring, Interventions, Support, and Education, under which students who commit crimes in public schools would no longer be reported to the police by administrators. Under promise, students would be evaluated and dealt with exclusively within the school's associated reform programs. Even felonies as severe as drug dealing, sexual assault, 
and bringing weapons to school could be lawfully kept from the police. End quote. This is a policy of covering up people who are a danger in the school system. This was a feel-good, political correct, lefty approach to school discipline. And the result was that people who were really a problem, people who were a threat to their fellow students, were being given second and third and 15th and 30th chances. Can't tell the cops if they bring weapons into school. Can't, can't give them a record because, you see, the record they have would then fall into this idea of the school-to-prison pipeline. This is a social justice warrior phrase that's supposed to mean that because schools aren't doing enough in terms of discipline and life coaching and whatever, mentoring, all these different things, that people become violent felons. They become dangerous. And so it's society's fault. It's not the felon's fault. Society put them in the school-to-prison pipeline, you see. Well, why does this have so much resonance with the social justice left? Oh, of course, there's a, a racial angle to all of this. We are told that when you actually have school administrators reporting dangerous, violent, criminal behavior in schools, there's a disproportionate effect on minority students. Therefore, the system must be racist, so we should just stop reporting these crimes. Here's a quote from the piece. Remember, this is about the administrator for the school district that Parkland was in who came up with these policies, this guy Runcy. Quote, Runcy saw that minority students were being referred to the police at higher rates than whites, Mr. Pollock tells it, rather than recognize that misbehavior can be the result of many complex problems outside of school or at home, the superintendent concluded the disparity was because teachers in schools were racist. With no reporting, now there's no crime, the school's data looks great, problem solved. But a much worse problem was created. No student has a criminal background as a result, so once you graduate from school and want to buy a gun... Background checks are useless. Oh, end quote. L look at the complexity here. Liberals like to bleat about background checks. Oh, that's going to solve it. If we just have more background checks, there won't be any more violence at schools. Meanwhile, their feel-good, do-goodism policies that put social justice ahead of safety in the schools and that think that there must be something inherently... Look, the, the fact of the matter is that there are racial disparities under murder statutes, too, meaning there's a racial disparity for people convicted of murder. Does that mean that we stop enforcing laws about murder? That's just a fact, by the way. People can get all uncomfortable and get angry about that. It is a fact. So if there is a disparity in school discipline resulting in referrals to the police, do we pretend that those infractions that are actually criminal infractions are not happening? The answer in this school district in Florida was yes. Pretend it's not happening. Pretend that there's no threat here. And oh, in this case, it means that some sycomaniac white kid, because of this overall policy meant to deal with discriminatory uh, racist practices of telling cops about criminal activity in the schools, this psychotic white kid killed 17 people. Mr. Pollock, quote, describes the Broward County School District as ground zero for a horrible approach to school safety that spread across America. In January 2014, 
the Obama administration issued guidelines to the nation's school boards directing them to adopt promise-like policies or risk a federal investigation and loss of funding. The report of the Trump School Safety Commission, published December 18th, recommended abolishing such programs. School boards won't be hounded anymore to put these policies in place, Mr. Pollack says, but there's nothing to stop a board from choosing to adopt promise. And Broward County has not abandoned it. So while at least the, because the Obama administration was threatening schools to adopt these crazy policies that if they decided to deviate from, they could lose funding. Obama was basically through his Department of Education saying, well, we don't want schools to have a disparate racial impact in their disciplinary policies. So if a kid brings a gun into school, don't tell the cops, put them into a diversionary mentoring program. If a kid sexually assaults a fellow student, you know, don't tell the cops, put them into a diversionary mentoring program and no record, by the way, no criminal record. So then when they do bad things later on, it's like, oh, where did this come from? It's just a way of scheming and gaming the stats to make school safety look better than it was. And this was top-down from the Obama administration. And you have to wonder, how bad how bad of an apple could get through this process? I mean, how rotten a kid, because of this policy, because of the Obama administration's top-down view of school safety, who could get through this? Well, this is a description of the shooter himself, Nicholas Cruz. Quote, in middle school, he was required to have adult supervision at all times. In high school, he vandalized a bathroom, causing more than $1,000 of damage. He racially abused black students and had fistfights with them. He carved swastikas on his desk. He hurled furniture across classrooms. He threw hard objects at other students, sometimes injuring them. He brought dead animals to school and often waved them before other students. He threatened to kill teachers and other students and shoot up the school. He wrote kill in his notebooks and spoke frequently about guns. He brought knives to school and on one occasion, a backpack full of bullets. Mr. Pollock said after that, the school banned him from bringing a backpack to school. But I ask you, if he's too dangerous to wear a backpack, why isn't he too dangerous to be in class with kids like my daughter? That is a damn good question, isn't it? You see, this father whose life will never be the same, who suffers heartbreak every day of losing his beautiful baby girl. This father wants to find out what really went wrong here. Whose stupidity allowed Nicholas Cruz to go without the punitive justice that should have been visited upon him well before any possibility of a mass shooting? What stupid federal-level policies prevented the police from being more aware of what he was doing in school. And yes, the police were called dozens and dozens of times to his home and they still couldn't do something. But at least there would have been a greater chance. At least there would have been some hope if the school expelled him, kept him out of the school, that this would not have happened. But you see, he's looking for real answers, real policy solutions. The left would rather just say, the NRA is a terrorist organization. That's why this happened and elevate the imbeciles that spread that lie while fathers like Mr. Pollock have to just suffer and try to find answers on their own. We have more coming up. Stay with me. Global Verification Network, the only dual certified and veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company out there. 
They are the people you need to go to. If you're in an HR department, if you've got a small business or a huge business, have them do your background checks. If you already have a company or someone you work with who does those background checks, give Global Verification Network a call. These guys are the best in the business. They are absolutely trustworthy, discreet, and efficient. They have headquarters in Chicago and offices throughout the nation. So whatever your needs, they can help you cover them. So for your background checks in 2019, call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Or go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. Global Verification Network. Leave no stone unturned. You know, sometimes a writer puts something out there and I feel like, oh, okay, so this is just meant to troll people and that's one way to get attention and it's going to get a certain group of people all fired up. And that can be a very effective tactic. I'm not necessarily putting it, to, putting it down. It depends on how it's done and what the topic is and all the rest of it. I would just say, though, when people are celebrating their kids' performances, if you tell them to tone it down a little bit, you may... You may find yourself uh, getting some pretty angry parents at you, but I, I, I agree with a general principle that is advanced by uh, this one writer at National Review, although I can't speak about kids' performances because I don't have any kids. Sarah Shoot, or it might be Shuta, I don't know, or Scut, could be any number of ways to say this name. Please stay seated. And she writes that our participation award-obsessed culture doesn't understand the true meaning of a standing ovation. And she goes in to say that at every children's performance in the K through 12 range, uh, there's this un understanding that at the end of whatever it is, everybody has to stand up and give a, a standing ovation. Look, I'm, I'm with her and that standing O should be something where something's really fantastic. And I don't think that we do people favors, even high schoolers, like little kids, I don't know, but even high schoolers, I don't know if we do them favors by making them think that everything they do is amazing. Applause, of course, right? Support, great, well done. Standing ovation. But but I, I leave this to the parenting experts in our audience, which as far as I'm concerned is everybody who has a kid. Uh, they know more about kids than I do. I will say this, though. I have noticed that at the theater or at any kind of live performance, there is this inclination to go for the standing O right away. And I got problems with this, okay? We, we all know when something's really worthy of the standing ovation. Standing ovation needs to be, this is like mind-blowing, awesome, and I, and I feel the need to get up on my feet because of it. A standing ovation is not supposed to be expected, you know, but then again, I'm also somebody that, that has a problem with the expectation of a 20% tip at a restaurant. 20% is supposed to be like if the service is really good. If the service is just kind of mediocre, I feel like it's supposed to be 15%, maybe 17%. But a 20% tip is supposed to be, you know, a, hey, great stuff. I, I have given 25% tips before if somebody does, a, uh, does me a favor during the meal or really does something fantastic, catches something maybe the kitchen didn't, like that dish has gluten in it, and even though they told me that it doesn't, stuff like that, you know. But there's an expectation that we're supposed to pretend that things are excellent that aren't. Service is excellent that isn't. Uh, a performance is excellent that isn't. And when you're at a performance and there's that whole standing O moment, you know, yeah, everyone stands up and does a whole clapping thing. If you are like me and you're sitting down, 
I, I don't want to look at the back of somebody who who is clapping maniacally uh, because of whatever's going on. I, I don't I don't want to have to then stand just so I can see what's going on on stage. I want to see the curtain calls. I want to see. Now I know this is a little bit of a get off my lawn segment, but you understand it's 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 a cultural thing that we should all agree upon. The standing ovation should be reserved for things that are truly excellent, not just for things that are like really, really good or good enough. And, you know, it's like I told somebody uh, recently, I can't remember where I saw this on the Internet, but it was parenting advice from I think it was a major league baseball player who said, you know, got to get your son to start giving you high fives early so he understands how the high five works, gets him psyched and enthusiastic about everything. But once you've really trained him with that high five, you got to throw in a down low too slow because life ain't fair and it's true you know i think of the some of the things that i've learned about you know you always want to be you always want people to support you and to be there for you because that takes into into account especially for kids the the whole learning process right you need people that are going to be telling you to keep going keep going not get discouraged but i i don't think it's a good thing to be told you're excellent when you're not you know i feel like i feel like i had a rude awakening when i came out of college like oh i went to a good school and and, uh, you know, I, I had an A minus average at a good school as a, you know, as a college kid or whatever. By the way, everybody, everybody had like a A minus or a B plus. Everybody, the whole school. That's what I didn't realize until later on in life. Uh, but then even when I was waiting to get security clearance, I remember applying for all these jobs. It's like, yeah, man, there's there's hundreds, if not thousands of great schools full of kids that got great grades. You're not special. It's like, oh, good to know. Probably would have been better to know that freshman year instead of thinking I could graduate from college and just be special because I wasn't. Had had to try to make myself special. And uh, that came later on in life. I'm still working on that one. Um, we have some uh, other making life special thoughts coming up here in the in the realm of keto. Should you eat keto? It's coming up. I am Hans. And I am Franz. And we, we just, just want, want to pop. Yeah, the truth is I could use a little Hans and Franz in my life these days. I got back to the gym yesterday, team, for the first time in, I don't even know, three or four, five or months. Um, I I managed to, uh, I I was just doing a little bit of closet rearranging, and I had a, one of those things I said, oh, I I forgot about that, that, uh, that suit that I, I you know can wear in the summer, it's not really a winter suit, but summer suit. I was like, oh, let me just, just I hope it still fits. Um, which whenever you think that to yourself, usually it's because, you know, it doesn't fit. And yeah, I got into one of those battles. Where I'm like, I got to get it around the waist. It's got to get around the waist. It's going to get on. And you started and you suck in. And then you realize, well, I'm not going to wear it sucking in. So I need to uh, anyway, um, I'm getting after it now. I'm, uh, I got back into the gym yesterday, squats, overhead, bench, all, all the, all the meat, the meat and potatoes basics. And man, as I sit here today, you would, you would think that I just did like a, you know, a, an Ironman. I just did a triathlon or something in terms of how my body feels, but no, it was like a 30 minute full body workout that I think you could probably put a fair amount of 75 year old women through and they'd be fine. So, uh, yeah, anyway, um, I'm, uh, I'm committed, though. I'm getting back into it. The one thing I'm thinking about, and if Jesse Kelly were here, he would mock me relentlessly for this. So we might have to have him come on just so he can make fun of me, is I have been reading about I, intermittent fasting does work. I've done that before. 
and it uh, some of you may have even noticed it was a couple of years ago and I just sh- shredded down to probably dropped about 20 pounds and was pretty close to what I would say was my ideal weight if if any of you have the the secret when it comes to keto and and are there enough keto foods to eat that you feel like you're happy the one really sad thing that I had to do this weekend was I have quite a chocolate stash that I have built up over recent months. I'm like, I just, just a little, just a little bit, you know, just, just a little taste, a little, little taste of the chocolate stash. And what I realized was my chocolate stash has turned into about three different bags of chocolate truffles, six different really high quality chocolate bars. I got some Valrona. I've got all this different stuff in there. And, and I finally just sealed it all up in one of those Tupperware things. I said, until you are back in summer suit, uh, summer suit shape. You are you are only chocolate on weekends. I'm not going to say I'm not eating any chocolate because that would just be a lie. But it would be only chocolate on weekends. But um, I, I'm sure a lot of you have uh, your own New Year's resolutions. Maybe they're about you know getting into a you know people say don't say get back into shape. They don't. That's not the positive way to think about it. That you're going to just build a a stronger, healthier you. You know I like that. Oh, I'm going to build a stronger, healthier me. Uh, so. And, you know, until I've reached the point where this is the single biggest radio slash podcast show in the world, I don't think I can afford to just like let it let it go. You know, just sit around, slap my big belly. Oh, it's huge. My belly is full of jelly. Hey, can't do that. Can't do that. So, uh, yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, I'm pretty, pretty confident that I'll get lean and mean. So uh, if you have any keto thoughts, though, facebook.com slash bucksex and let me know what your thoughts are. I know there are at least a few fitness experts in this audience. So fitness experts, tell me when you're getting back into it, when you've been, let's say, uh, not really getting after for a while, what do you recommend? Let me know. And we'll be back with Roll Call in just a moment. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. That's right, Roll Call. Pure, unadulterated, the real thing, the real deal. Getting right to it. Lisa! What's up, Lisa? Lisa writes, Buck! With all the previous votes for border security and the Secure Fences Act, the $25 billion Schumer voted for last year, where has all this money gone? I heard one program, either you or Sean, there was funding at one time for 700 miles of fence wall. Is there that much down there? What has been done with all that money? I'm not understanding why this is even still necessary at this point, and if there isn't that much, It has already been approved in the past, so why can't he just finish what was started but not finished? It had to be funded, right? I just am not understanding. Shields high, Lisa. Well, Lisa, uh, you raised some very good points here, and I don't know if it was me or Sean. It was probably both of us that talked about what's going on with funding for barriers for a fence. Isn't it amazing how we have been told so many times in recent weeks that a fence is crazy. Barriers are insane, man. Like, why do you even want a barrier fence, man? Like, you know, it's just nuts. And then when you do a little bit of 
research about the border, it turns out that there is already a lot of fencing, uh, a couple of hundred miles of barriers and fencing already at the border. So we got a 2,000 mile border and we got a lot of border that needs additional protection. And this is what they don't want to do. And that's why they're acting like there's no money for this. Of course, there's plenty of money for this. Schumer wanted to give $25 billion before, but remember, the $25 billion was tied to DACA, and the whole purpose of DACA is to change the game forever such that Republicans will be a party that is in continuous uh, opposition, never, never in power, uh, that you'll have America become a one-party state. It's pretty clear that's what will happen if you have continued waves of illegal immigration and also uh, amnesty on top of it. People say, oh, why is that? Why do you assume that illegal immigrants are going to vote Democrat? I don't think they're going to vote Democrat forever, necessarily. But if you come to this country and you don't speak English and you don't have skills to compete in the information economy, you're going to be working for wages. Real wage growth since 1950, I believe, has been stagnant. I mean, real wages. And it's only going to get worse, as I've been discussing with you, because of automation and what AI is going to do to jobs. And when you think about how retail and transportation, you put those two together, retail and transportation are a huge percentage of jobs that people making less than the household, average household income are making. And you realize that those are jobs that might get automated out very easily, very soon. What do we do with all those people? I think 10% of the workforce is in retail, which is, is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Uh, Karen writes, Hey Buck, don't pay attention to the journos and the clown prince and Princess Chuck and Nancy. All us real people want borders and border security. I called Chuck and Nancy's office and called for a wall here. Uh, here are the numbers. Give them a call. Well, thank you, Karen. Maybe I will give them a call. Give them a piece of my mind while I'm at it. Be like, yo, what's going on, Chuck and Nancy? Why are you so opposed to borders? Come on. We all know that borders are a good thing. Chuck and Nancy, let me tell you, if all of a sudden you thought that you could just wander on to Nancy's estate in Marin County, just, uh, just outside of San Francisco, I'm sure all of a sudden she would be very interested in fences and borders and boundaries. But hypocrisy is a central characteristic and a, and a central theme of the Democrat Party. So that's what we have to deal with, unfortunately. Kelvin writes, Buck, get a load of the supposed non-unified mass media we speak of cramming this Russia collusion crap down our throats as if it was real or even new. I'm guessing they found out how popular the wall still is and needed to discredit the president. Talk about beating a dead horse. Shields high. Kelvin, I, look, I agree. I, I think that this latest story that broke has almost nothing new in it. I'm very skeptical of this story as something that people should think adds to the narrative at all. I mean, really what you have is the FBI trying to excuse FBI prior conduct. And it's an, it's an organization that is enmeshed in scandal. You know, I was in the CIA when black sites broke in the news. I was in the CIA when waterboarding was going on. Let me tell you something. Nobody was walking around saying, well, it's CIA, so everything they do is fine and we don't have to even think about it and they're just perfect. Meanwhile, with the FBI, libs pretend like all of these powers they have, FISA and 
uh, counterintelligence investigation authority and all this stuff, all of that is just fine and dandy. There's no problem at all. There's no real concern that the FBI perhaps needed greater oversight, that the FBI may have stepped outside of its bounds. You know, nobody wants to hear anything about that, do they? And that's just because libs are full of it. They have no actual principles when it comes to law enforcement or intelligence. They just want what they want when they want it. Jay writes, Hey, Buck, about your celiac issue. I read that distilled liquors, even ones derived from a grain containing gluten, are considered to be gluten-free because the distillation process supposedly removes the gluten proteins, although they still aren't allowed to label them as gluten-free. Now, I've also read that a small number of gluten-sensitive people still react to it. Nonetheless, while most do not. So the jury is out on the issue of safe consumption for celiac sufferers. My question is whether you have ever tried whiskey after your celiac diagnosis to know if you personally react to them. I was just curious. I'm a bourbon and scotch fan. I've been to several distilleries. I'd love to send you some recommendations for good whiskey if you could partake in enjoying them. Hence the question, have a great day, Shields High. Well, Jay, the answer to what you've written out here, the answer to your question is yes. Yes, there are people that think that it is safe to drink uh, grain-based alcohol, um, even if you have celiac disease. And yes, there are people say that they still react and they still are sensitive enough that it's not okay for them. I do drink a bit of hard liquor from time to time, but just because I don't need to tempt fate, I tend to focus on tequila and mezcal and only, uh, and, and potato-based vodkas. I will have a really good scotch or really good whiskey, but tequila and mezcal are what's really in, in my wheelhouse. I don't mess around too much with other alcohol. Oh, and wine. Uh, and I obviously cannot drink beer. As a celiac sufferer, you absolutely cannot have beer. I think I mentioned this, but they believe that celiac disease may have been a mutation, a genetic mutation for Western Europeans intended to help them fight certain kinds of bacterial infection. And the body just made some mistakes in that process. Uh, let me see here. Aries writes, uh-oh, Aries going long here. Buck, just want to say, if you were right about anything, and seldom yours, it concerns music, but Aerosmith is the best American rock band in history. See, Aries? And honestly, aren't they all American rock bands? They get houses in New York and L.A. and made most of their money here. That's a, that's a, fair, that's a fair point. Um, that's a fair point, Aries. They, they do... You know, this is like, I, I always thought it was strange that the uh, very lovely and very tall Maria Sharapova chose to always play for the Russian Federation in international tennis matches, even though she had been living in America and trained in America since I think she was five. To me, that feels pretty American. But, you know, people, I guess, they choose what they want to choose. Uh, Daniel writes... You definitely need to step up your music analysis game if you don't know or appreciate Tool. Well, Daniel, I guess I'm, I sound like kind of a Tool then. I didn't know this was a band that people really like. I don't know everything. I got to make some, uh, I got to make some time for some Tool, I guess. I'll, I'll figure that out. Virginia said, you said you're going to the Wall Southern Border next week. Why don't you take Jim Acosta with you and show him what he's missing in his reporting? Well, I would be happy to take Mr. Acosta along, but I don't think that he'd want to go for a ride along with me, uh, especially because then how could he get away with 
all the shenanigans, his, uh, was it Instagram or Twitter or however he's putting that stuff out there of the video. Yeah, here I am at the wall and things are really quiet here. I guess uh, it's not quite the hellscape here at the border that the Republicans have been saying, huh? It's almost like this big wall thing kind of works. Oi, that guy, I swear. Harry, I'm a podcast listener, Buck, that has fallen behind, so you may have already covered this. If the USA had national health care and government employees use the same program, RBG would have patted on the head and been told she's too old for her cancer treatment. Be careful what you ask for, lefties. Shields high. Harry. Well, you know, Harry, um, uh, you know, the, the truth is that these health care systems in countries like the UK where people uh, are all happy because they think, oh, it's socialist medicine and everything will be great. And the UK really is socialist medicine, I would note. I mean, the UK... You have the National Health Service that is truly in control of hospitals, truly in control of the delivery system and the employees and, and all aspects of healthcare. And there, there is something of a private market there, but it's, it's small, um, as I understand it. People do have some private insurance. And you, look, you can always find a medical professional that if you're, willing to, if you're willing to write a check, they'll treat you. But cancer survival rates in America are better than they are in Europe. And I think that is because cancer is incredibly expensive to treat most of the time. And we don't have a rationing system in this country for it the way that they do in places like the UK. Um, you know, I can tell you that if I had an ear infection, yeah, I'd rather be in Sweden or in the UK than America these days. If I had a life-threatening illness, I'd take America every time. 99 times out of 100, you want to be in the US of A. Uh, let's see. We have time for one more. James writes, Buck, your position on littering is exactly on the nose. I was out in the neighborhood I live in here in Puerto Rico on New Year's Eve, and I watched this guy I just met open a pack of cigarettes, tear off the cellophane and foil, and throw it directly on the ground. There was a trash barrel literally 10 feet away. Shortly after that, I watched another person throw an empty beer can on the ground. Now, I'm not going to say that it ruined my night or anything, but it bothered me more than I thought it would. Um, the fact that it happened in Puerto Rico is not relevant. I'm just rubbing it in a little since I'm a native New Englander. And I know it's cold up there. Anyway, have fun at the border. Be safe, James. James, littering is very much, I've said this before, but uh, littering is very much a, uh, or rather the trash on the streets of a place tells you a lot about how wealthy it is, how developed it is, the state of its civil society. Uh, advanced wealthy countries do not have filthy streets. Um, they do not have the same kind of trash on the streets that countries that are still either developing or third world. I mean, third world countries, one way you know you're in them is there's trash everywhere. There's just trash everywhere. You walk around, there's just garbage. Like people have ripped open their garbage bags and just let it all out on the street everywhere. That's how you know you're in the third world. All right, team, that's going to be it for today. I'm going to be out at the border tomorrow. Wish me good luck and uh, safe passage, my friends. Talking to you from San Diego. Woo! Speak to you then. Shields high. You're probably familiar with AARP. You or someone you know might already be a member. But did you know that the AARP lobbies for lots of progressive left-wing causes? You know, they stood against tax cuts for middle-class Americans and small business owners. And they're all about Obamacare. I got an idea. How about you get all of the benefits of AARP without the progressive politics? I recommend AMAC if that's what you want. Why AMAC? Well, you see, AMAC gets you discounts on car insurance, hotels, roadside assistance, dental plans, even cell service options. So it gets you all the upside of AARP, but it also is about 
conservative ideology and policy. Join AMAC. It's the conservative alternative to AARP. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight by becoming a member today. The benefits are great. The cause is even greater. Tell your family, tell your friends. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's amac.us slash buck. amac.us slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America.